Housing affordability has been a big topic of discussion in recent times, and despite the rhetoric, it doesn't seem to be something that our governments are serious about addressing. Yes, there are first home buyer initiatives and incentives, but they're just increasing demand without dealing with supply, and they're also ignoring the third of our population who rent. Is it time we face up to reality and retire the great Australian dream of home ownership for the majority? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? The elephant in the room.com.au. We're experiencing some economic headwinds at the moment with the increasing cost of living, interest rate rises, wage stagnation, rental shortages, and a property market that's about to fetch. $10 trillion in value. Sounds pretty scary. So we've asked Brendan Coates to come and help us understand the implications of all of this. This is our fifth chat with Brendan on the podcast. And if you want to listen to previous episodes, we'll put the links in the show notes. Brendan is the Economic Policy Program Director at Grattan Institute, where he leads Grattan's work on tax and transfer system reform. That sounds gripping. Retirement incomes and superannuation housing, macroeconomics and migration. And we are really thrilled that you're back to join us again today, Brendan. Thank you. Thanks, Veronica. I feel like I have all the exciting topics uh, on public policy that people love to talk about. <laughs> well, everyone wants to talk about property, don't they? So, hmm. Brendan, thanks for coming on, mate. Always really enjoy our chat. So I missed a flight almost from our first chat and because uh, I couldn't stop talking to you. So thanks for coming on again. I mean, let's just start with a big one. I mean, our listeners are going to hear this after the election, which is, you know, only 10 days away or whatever it is. But, um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what the, who wins, but also the policies they have around housing at are quite different. Um, I mean, what, what's your thoughts on, I guess, what they're both trying to do to um, get the first home buyer vote? Yeah, it is interesting. Look, I think uh, at the outset, it's worth pointing out, compared to 2019, I think maybe the first time we talked was a sort of mm, either before, around yeah. or not long it after It was that. 2018, I can uh, tell yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah, back when we actually did it in a studio in <laughs> South did. Melbourne, I'm pretty yes. sure I actually got on a tram and, and <laughs> physically went somewhere, which is like feels like a different <laughs> world today. Um but, you know, if you're thinking back to that 2019 election you're comparing to today, look, it's fair to say at the outset there are diminished ambitions mm. around housing um, in the federal election campaign. You know, whether you liked it or not, like the debate about negative gearing and the capital gains tax discount was a much more substantive discussion about some of the things that probably need to happen to make housing more yep. affordable in the long term. Where What we had this time around is basically, as you put it, Chris, both sides are competing to help first-time buyers. Some of the policies that are on the table I actually think are, are actually helpful, but not necessarily for the reasons that the parties have put forward. But we are in a world where housing, you know, everyone's talking about it because it's an emer- it's a growing problem. You know, uh, homeownership rates are falling through the floor. Rents are rising, particularly mm. if you're in the rental market right now trying to get a, get a property. Uh, and so, you know, people, politicians are talking about it because there's demand for solutions, uh, but governments haven't really gone to where we need to go to actually solve those problems. This you election. almost said the word emergency there, but I think you stopped yourself. Um, do you think it's like at that sort of crisis level, um, you know, like are we at that point where it's becoming a real, real big social issue on lots of different levels? Yeah, I, look, I do. Chris, the short answer is 
you know, I've called it a crisis before because so many aspects of Australian life in particular are sort of founded on the idea of home ownership, which has sort of been pivotal to the to the way that we house Australians ever since Menzies. You know, Menzies sort of um, and that, that period when he was in power from the 50s through um, over the course of the next couple of decades was basically when home ownership reached sort of its historic highs. Now we're seeing home ownership fall. Look, amongst younger poorer Australians, it's basically halved over the yeah. last 40 years. So if you look at 25 to 34-year-olds, the poorest 40% of that group, 20 years, 40 years ago, 58% owned, you know, wow. now it's 28%. And so the reason why this matters is, look, there are lots of societies around the world where home ownership isn't kind of pivotal to the way they structure their world. Uh, but it is how we've built so many parts of, you know, Australian public life. Our retirement income system is essentially contingent on you owning your own home in retirement or ending up in social housing. Uh, basically, half of people who rent in retirement are in poverty. And so, as we see falling rates of home ownership in Australia, which is what we're seeing today and likely to continue, you will see, you know, many people retire into a really insecure future. And I think that's actually the problem that we're going to have to grapple with over the course of the next couple of decades. So we've got a number of problems here. We've got a, a problem with rental shortages. So there's not enough properties for people to rent in a lot of areas and that's obviously been exacerbated by the way that our populations have moved around as a consequence of COVID. But also then you've got a situation where you're saying that um, investors, the tax breaks that, that encourage investors to be in the market you know, they're pulling away from first home buyers being able to get into the market. But at the same time, we've got a rental problem. So I guess if there's more first home buyers, there's less people renting. So how, how do we reconcile this idea about, well, investors are taking homes away from first home buyers, but at the same time, not everybody mm. who's renting is going to be a first home buyer? Yeah, so you're going to always going to have some people in the private rental market and some low income earners. It's hard to imagine a world where that's not true. Um, but look, it is certainly true that the more that you sort of have tax settings that encourage investors into the market, then by definition, you're probably going to have investors beating out against first home buyers at auction. By definition, that means you've got falling rates of home ownership and more, you know, investors. Now, the the trope that you often hear, right, and we saw this all the time in 2019 is, well, investors will just withdraw their stock from the market and like, you know, you'll just get less supply. Um, now, obviously, in the short term, the stock still exists. The ha- unless the investor, like, torches the house on their way out the door when they drop off the keys, the house still exists and someone else is going to buy it. And what tends to happen is the first home buyer buys it. That's why negative gearing, the capital gains tax discount, we didn't think they'd have a big impact on house prices at all. But what they probably would have done would have, have quite a big impact on rates of home ownership because investors would lose out to first home buyers at auction. But it's also why we need policies that are going to support people who are going to rent um, and, you know, that's why Grattan has pushed for an increase in rent assistance, the payment that goes to low-income renters. It's why we've pushed for, uh, you know, more social housing to help those otherwise at risk of homelessness because these are all downstream consequences of the world where fewer people are going to mm. own. Housing costs have increased. And then obviously there are broader solutions like we need to build a lot more if you're going to house everyone irrespective of, you know, what subsidies you provide to people at the bottom. You're going to just need more housing if you want it to be more affordable in the long run. In the last um, couple of years, though, the rate of first home buyer participation in the market has gone up, and we, you could argue that might be driven by the you know the federal government's five percent deposit guarantees and those sorts of things. I think the annual rate was around about one hundred thousand a year, and it's gone up to about one hundred sixty thousand for the last couple of years, for, if I've got that right. So, and at the same time, you've had investor participation has actually dropped. 
you know, it's fallen. And so, and, and definitely that was, you know, that had started happening back in 2016, I think, with the, the tightening of investor lending. I, I always struggle with this because I think as an investor, regardless of what you're investing in, you should get tax deductions for the costs of your investment, right? And or the costs incurred in having that investment. So for me, I don't understand why negative gearing on its own is seen as being, you know, the big baddie. Couldn't there be other ways to actually increase the barrier to enter the market for investors? I mean, what they don't have is the same. The, the barrier that they don't have that first home buyers has is having to save the deposit. They've already done that once, most of them, you know, when they've actually bought the first property and they're using equ- if they're using equity. So there's got to be other more creative ways you could do to increase that barrier rather than just take away negative gearing? Well, the big issue is probably not negative gearing. The big, the big issue yeah. is the capital gains tax mm. discount. You know, the idea of having a discount makes sense. So, you know, for those playing along at home who are sort of armchair tax nerds, like the way <laughs> that you think about this is we offer essentially people a tax on their capital gains the reason we offer a discount is because some of those gains that you get are basically just compensation for yeah. inflation, the fact that, you know, the asset value has gone up. and But part of that's just making sure you, when you sell it, you can buy the same amount of goods and services with it, with the money as what you could when you first bought it, say, 10 years earlier. But that discount, as it turned out, in a low inflation world has been mm. way too generous. So they basically used to charge the capital gains tax uh, on the sort of uh, inflation-adjusted gains. We moved to a world where we did it based on a few rough proxy 50% discount. Uh, having spoken to people in Treasury at the time that was done, it was not particularly scientific. <laughs> and as it turned out, that was it was it was a huge free kick in the sense that inflationary gains were probably more like a third rather than 50%. Yeah. And so that's why we think that capital gains tax discount should probably look something more like 25%, which is why which is what we put forward before the Do last. Do you think election. Brennan though that it's going to take a number of elections um, for the confidence for either party to, you know, let's say the Labor win this, it's going to, the Liberal aren't going to come back with a really strong housing policy in the next election, right? Um, and, you know, maybe Labor come in harder next time. But how many elections do they actually make the real tax changes that they need to? I mean, you know, adding the home to the pension test, you know, increasing the CGT, removing negative gearing. Um, there's lots of things that they could make, but it's really whether the willpower is there. And, you know, is like climate change, is it going to be almost, you know, three or four elections down the line before you can really see any government going back to try to challenge housing policy? Well, I think the only thing worse than not having, putting forward ambitious policy is putting them forward and failing, right? And so once you do that, it becomes, it takes a long time for it to come back. You know, that's why before the last election, when Labor was considering this, like, the coalition were considering it too. Like that's that's a matter of mm. historical record if you look through some of the um the sort of freedom information mm. box. Um, and unfortunately, what happened is the party that was in opposition yeah. took it forward, and then lost the election. And the risk is always that if opposition puts forward that policy and then they lose, then that doesn't come back. And then they you know they drop it, and it's sort of seen as being a bit of a poison chalice. So you know we put forward policies. They're hoping that a government of the day picks them up. If the opposition picks them up, that's the next best thing because it is slightly it is less likely to occur if they're in opposition and mm. they may become the government. Uh, but, you know, it does mean that I think we're a little while away before those come back on. I think what will make them come back on is the fact that the budget position, you know, we now have a massively larger debt than what we did previously. It was absolutely the right thing to do, as we've talked about before on this podcast. But we're in a world where, you know, debt's close to a trillion dollars, thereabouts. 
um, the, the federal government's running a structural budget deficit of 2% of GDP. That's going to be unsustainable in the long term when you've got NDIS spending is going to rise. They're going to have to spend more on aged care. That's just unavoidable. Mm. And if you're thinking about where do you find the money, well, you can try to cut spending and, you know, that's something we should look to do. But you're going to probably have to raise taxes. And if you're going to raise some taxes, then, you know, negative gearing or the capital gains tax discount in particular, super tax breaks, they should be the first things up against the wall. You know, that's where I would start. And I think if you, if I'd imagine if the Treasury is cooking up ideas for the red and blue books, their incoming government briefs, they're probably not putting, saying, dear new part government, please enact negative gear and capital gains tax reform today, but they're probably tilling the ground to say that these things are going to have to so happen. What are the easy there. wins, though? Like, is if, but easy but big wins, you know? There's no point going and fighting for a tax <laughs> change and then making a small amount of money, you know? What would be your go-to, you know, if you were sort of designing policy to really sort of boost the income, I guess? I think, I think the best way to do it, uh, and this is something we're going to look at more, um, you know, after the election, is I think yeah. super tax is the yeah. first thing you do. Like, the, yeah. it's just unsustainable um, and it, it's not consistent yeah. with the purpose of super to have such generous tax breaks. So, the top 20% that are going to own their own home, they're going to probably not get the age pension anyway. They're already saving enough. Kind of so, why what, are you doing this? In terms of reducing the 1.6 per person million that you can have in super and or what? Or getting rid of the pension altogether? Tax? No tax-free environment in super? What are you thinking? Uh, no. So I think there's a couple. So you know, there's a couple of different ways you can sort of um, you could do it. You could either try to cut down the contributions caps further. So it's twenty-five thousand pre-tax contribution. You could do that. We've recommended they should go to eleven in the past. <laughs> um, you know, if you're serious about it, that's where you save the money. Um, obviously, the 1.6 million, tra- well, now it's 1.7 million transfer balance cap. You could reduce that. Yeah. That would save quite a lot of money. I actually, the one we're thinking about a little bit more about is should you have some kind of, think of a Medicare levy style surcharge that applied to super balances <laughs> and then using it to fund aged care? You know, we use hypothecation all the time. You know, you think of when the NDIS was created, how did they fund it? They fund it through an increase in the Medicare levy. Was it enough? No, because they under underestimated the budgetary cost. If they went back in time, instead of a 0.5% increase in the Medicare levy, I think they would have definitely gone a 1% increase. And I think you've got to link explicitly the tax, the, the what the money is for. Like, why are we raising this money? And it, frankly, it's in, in the case of super, you know, and the people who are, you're taking quite a lot of the money from, you're taking the money mm. from them. So that they have, they're going to get at least an aged care experience. So it's an easier sell. Interesting. <laughs> well, it's as easy a sell as you're going to get. Like none of these things are particularly easy sells because you're taking mm-hmm. money off people. People become losers, and we don't like we don't like the you know the political process is uh, always um, elevates losers and diminishes winners in the public debate over policy change. And but that I think is the best chance you've got is to link it to HF. I guess if they say, look, we're going to do a levy on your super funds as a percentage, if it's, you know, 0.1% or whatever it is, right, um, they would probably go for that and losing their tax-free status of their super. And so maybe it's, you know, a bit of a trade-off. It's, a, you know, the best of both bad, bad worlds, I guess, and they just go, well, let's just pay the levy because it's as long as we maintain our tax-free status. I mean, do you think that's sort of what's going to happen? It's a ticking time bomb. It's too much money for them to ignore trying to get more taxes from. Yeah, I don't see how you can fix the budget position in the long term with super looking yeah. the way it does. 
And that includes like the levy, you know, increasing up to the 12% that's been legislated, right? So, you know, I know that we've spoken about this before as well as to, you know, is that more than is necessary these days? And, and I guess in that world too, I mean, when you talk about the amount of people that go into retirement who don't own their own home, would you say 50% of renters in retirement are living in poverty, would you say? Would that's that right. yeah. would that proportion go down as as the population gets older and the people that have got higher super balances are entering into retirement even without their own home? Would that make any difference based on, you know, that the superannuation guarantee that we have? Yes, the, the short answer is yes. Like if you're in a world where you've the, the composition of who's in retirement being a renter will be different because it was a lot easier to buy 30 years ago and so the average person who didn't buy was poorer than what the average person who rents in retirement will be right, in the future. Yep. But you're still talking about, you know, if the median rent in Australia is $18,000 a year, um, you still need a reasonable size super balance to not fall mm. below that. Um, and so... You know, the reason why the home has been so effective in sort of reducing in sort of reducing poverty is because it basically it insulates you, it ensures you against housing costs. Yeah. You're no longer worried, you're no longer subject to am I going to get priced out of my suburbs. So say like someone who bought in inner city western Sydney and someone who rented mm-hmm. in inner city western Sydney. Only one of them still living there today if they're a pensioner. The other one can't. So yeah. is that why you're so f- much of a fan of the labour policy in terms of you know, the rent to buy, um, what do they call it, home to buy? What's what's the name of it, the catchy name? The help to buy, help yep, to buy. the, the yeah. lingo that, um, you know, wins the votes. But, I mean, is that why you're such a fan in terms of, you know, allowing people, you know, ideally on lower incomes to be able to afford to buy today and um, protect themselves from that poverty risk when they get to retirement? Is that really the crux of it? Yeah, that's right, Chris. So my views on some of these policies have shifted a bit probably since we spoke you know, three or four years ago, right? So, um, my my former view was that anything you would do on the demand side is is is, is counterproductive, right? That's probably mm. the view that Saul Eastlake would hold if you have him on we the did. podcast. <laughs> yes, um, yeah, yeah, right. And you know, I was influenced by Saul as as um, you know, he's a he's a pretty impressive guy, a thoughtful guy. I think what as we've spent more time looking at it from yeah. the retirement side and the government's retirement income review, I think really crystallised this is that you're going to see falling home rates of home ownership amongst older people. And, you know, why you should absolutely focus on fixing supply, you know, reducing those tax concessions to take the heat out of demand, you know, that, that'll result in sort of essentially lower prices and lower rents. There is a case if you act judiciously on the demand side to help those that genuinely won't be able to buy otherwise. And so, the, you know, the, what motivated us there is home ownership amongst older, poorer people is also falling quite sharply. Mm. So, you know, if you go back 40 years, 71% of people aged 45 to 54 who were in the poorest 40%, they owned 71%. Now it's yep. 55%, so just over half. And so those people are going to retire in the next 15 years. And if they're retiring into a world where they don't own and they're renting and they'll have some super then there are much greater risk. They're exposed to the vagaries of the housing market, to the rental market. They don't have tenure security. Um, they don't have all of these things. And so, you know, the, I see the rent, the help to buy scheme from Labor. Look, the, the media discussion is always about first-time buyers because yeah. there are more of them. Um, that's the sort of frame that is adopted. But I actually think it's probably more valuable for oh, older people. Yeah. That's actually where most I've of I've actually been talking be. to quite a lot of, 
sort of older first home buyers. You know, I think it's a bit of a myth that your first home buyer is all in their sort of 20s or early 30s. You know, quite a few are in their 50s. And yeah. um, there is a cohort of people that don't own. They might not be a first home buyer, but they're not currently an owner. You know, so if they've had a relationship breakdown or some reason why they're no longer living in their own home, um, you know, a number of people, I've been interviewing people yeah. for your first home buyer guide and, and, you know, a number of people have, yeah, they've been renting for, say, 10, 15 years following a, a, break, a relationship breakdown so you know i think what there's ten thousand places or something with the um labor's policy here yeah 10, yeah so right. are, are they um going to target it to those most yeah. at, now how do they target it or how do they actually determine who's most at need maybe there has to be a minimum age which i don't think there is but you know why is the if you're really trying to solve the you know should it be that targeted you know 40 to 55 year olds that are on a certain amount of income and are really low income and haven't bought before like is that does it need to be that targeted because ten thousand is just a drop in the ocean when you're talking a population of 10 million taxpayers right no that's right so you've got 10 million households in australia so that's roughly mm. 10 million houses more or less so just first veronica on your point about separations like that's exactly right so we did some work that showed that if you lose the home when you separate only one third of women buy again within five years less than half buy yep. again within wow. 10. The numbers are slightly high for mm. me, like, but, you know, not much higher. And that is precisely the code. Look, when we've been looking for houses, almost every house that we've looked at is a separation wow. because we're looking for yep. family homes, right? And a lot of friends, they're in the same boat. So that is the cohort who I think will most benefit from it. Um, it's an interesting question about targeting. So the main criticism I have of the Labor scheme, because, look, Grattan put forward a shared equity scheme back in February that it's fair to say does look a fair bit like what Labor's <laughs> proposed. You know, that's the game that we're in. Uh, we obviously talked to both sides. I would have been delighted if the government had taken up. Um, they haven't. Labor has. Um, they both seem pretty keen when we talk to them, but obviously things go in different ways. Um, and so, you know, with that shared equity scheme, the big difference between Labor scheme and ours is I suggested a 5,000 a year trial just to set it up, to sort of test this thing first mm. before you expand it. They've gone with 10 straight away. Um, they've gone with income thresholds of 90,000 for singles, 120,000 for couples, which, look, I, to a lot of your listeners, probably doesn't sound like much. But 80% of single people of working age earn less than 90 grand. Mm. So it's too high. Right? Yeah. Mm. In my view, it is. Yeah, so we suggested 60 for singles. 120 for right? couples, about 40% yeah. of couples earn less that's than that. That's probably closer. But then again, couples, Chris, they mainly own their own homes. So I've never done mm. the breakdown, but if you looked at who rents, it's overwhelming mm. the singles, mm. right? Well, like single adult households, I should say, mm. like lots yeah. of single parents, but certainly because the, the the biggest barrier is, you know, people's means. And if you're trying to do it all on one income, yeah. that's pretty hard. So we said 60,000 for singles, which is the median income for working age Australians and 90 for couples, which only captures about 20 or 21% mm. of couples. So, you know, if you you could certainly do a scheme like this and just reserve it for older people, I think the politics of that are really hard, <laughs> right? So, because you're saying, wait, we're not going to help you now, but we will help you if you get to 45. Um, like, that's, that's the issue. It's the same with, you know, if you think about super for housing, I don't think that allowing people to access this super for housing generally is a good idea. I'd be very open to it if you went for, say, if you haven't bought a house at 45. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm and you're, you generally yeah. haven't bought before, then, yeah, I would say you probably yeah. should be able to. But, again, are you only going to do that for over 45s and not do it for everyone else? It's a pretty politically difficult mm. sell. So 
maybe a way in, Chris, Veronica, is the first 10,000, it's open to everyone. If you define that there's more demand over time, maybe adding additional places to the just for older Australians is one There would be, I'm it. sure, more demand. But how's it been running in Victoria? Because they've got a sort of similar scheme. And doesn't doesn't uh, WA have um, a scheme somewhat similar as well? Have you done any work on those two schemes or, or any research on them? Yeah, so that's partly what, you know, made me comfortable that this would work is that it exists in a couple of states already. So the WA Key Start scheme has been around for, you know, a couple of decades um, and it's worked reasonably well. The income thresholds there, by the way, are 70000 and 90000 so they're much more like what I Although property is pretty cheap um, over there compared yeah. to... <laughs> yeah. Well, median incomes are higher in WA than they okay. are in the rest of the country, yeah. right? So, yeah, the average person earns more in WA. Victoria, Victorians, apart from Tassie, I think earn less than almost anyone else. Isn't that um, interesting that it doesn't translate into property prices? Yeah, I, I think that is it is fascinating mm. that that's the case. Um, I think it's, you know, there's just such strong, like the average prices in Melbourne, for example, are just driven by, you know, the fact that anywhere within 10Ks of the city, there's a lot of jobs and therefore mm. a lot of demand. And the median income, I suspect, where we all live is yeah. probably much higher than the mm. median income, you know, across these states in general. And so if you're thinking of the WA scheme, it's worked pretty well, but it's relatively small, right? Like the, the constraint has always, there has always been the amount of capital the WA, WA government gives to Keystart, which is sort of a, a fully owned but private, otherwise private business, government-owned otherwise private business that, provide, that runs it. The Victorian scheme is interesting because it is bigger than the others. It's um, open to incomes of 125,000 as singles and 200,000 as couples. I think that's mm-hmm. just way too high. <laughs> Um, and, you know, it'll be interesting to see how much demand they get, but I think they're going to give a bunch of support to people that are just going to buy anyway. And, mm. you know, I don't, I don't think yeah, that's Yeah, there's, there are some limitations too, aren't there? I mean, you have to live in it. You can't, you know, so the flexibility around, uh, you know, how you live in that or whether you keep it or move out, whether you decide to rent first, whether you move overseas for a bit or all those sorts of um, flexibilities um, aren't there. So I guess particularly with older um, people, you would see that that pro- maybe they're more settled, particularly if they've got kids and all that sort of stuff. Then that's might line up better. Um, and I think also that um, you know how you pay it back is an interesting, you know, how is that calculated? How how is it paid back? Um, is there any indexing and in, indexation in there? I, I don't know. I haven't read the policies yet. I'd need to. But do you know anything there? <laughs> can, you, can you shed some light on that? Yeah. So we. We thought through a bunch of those things. Um, so just first of all, on the older people, like who do who will they pay it back? Now, for older people, the reason why I think this is so valuable is because say, you know, you've got I'm just gonna use an example. Say you because the maths are easy, but you can you can apply it to a larger property, a more expensive property. So say you've you've got you're looking for a five hundred thousand dollar home, which is more relevant mm-hmm. outside Sydney and Melbourne, but you know, the rest of the country potentially, you've got a two hundred thousand dollar deposit. You're set from a separation, you know, when you separated 15 years ago. The kids are now 15 years old, maybe you're 55, um, and maybe you've got 10 at most 15 mm. years left in the workforce. You would struggle to get a loan potentially to pay down $300,000 of equity by the time you retire mm. in 10, 15 years' time potentially. But if the government's chipping in 30%, 150 grand, all you've got to pay down by retirement is the $150,000 yep. extra. Because for young people, it's the deposit mm. hurdle. For old people, it's actually the ability to service yeah. the mortgage that is the thing that stops them from buying, even if they've mm. got some capital. If you've got no capital, 
well, look, this isn't for you. Home ownership is not an option for you. Like then you're thinking about social housing, you're thinking about yeah. rent assistance. But if you do have some capital, particularly if you've accumulated some super as well, and you maybe want to use that when you retire to help liquidate the government share, but otherwise the government is just a silent mm. partner in the home through your retirement years. So, Brenda, I mean, does it need to be, um, I'm just trying to do the numbers in my head of if how many people would be eligible for it and who would actually want to take it up and how much 10,000 10, is, you know. Is it 1% of the people that out there that, you know, is eligible for this um, that they're willing to, you know, offer? Do you have any idea? It would be a million people would be willing, wanting to take on this scheme or what do you think? So a good rule of thumb, Chris, uh, so the actual numbers, um, I think it's hard to predict mm. precisely because some of the things that Veronica mentioned before is kind of like bugs, like, you know, the government, in the words of Scott Morrison, is sitting at yes. the kitchen table. That's the image of Anthony Albanese. <laughs> um, you, you know, that's not attractive to a lot of people. Um, some people see that as a bug. I almost see mm. that as a feature. Um, you only use this scheme if you need to, and if you're other way, you don't have another way of getting into the market. Because if you don't have another way of getting in, but this allows you to get in, then yeah, like you'll you'll accept the fact that the government owns 30, 40% of the home. You've got to get their approval if you do a renovation. You know, if you think of the other Labor hasn't announced everything, but if you just look at the other state schemes, it's like normally you've got to submit income records every year to prove that you're still eligible. You've got to yeah. Um, get government approval for any renovation worth more than 10 grand, right? Anytime you're going to do a building permit or anytime there's a planning permit needed, you know, just to make sure that your your objective is not just to, you know, destroy mm. the government's value in the process. Um, now, that's invasive. And so the people who are going to want to do that are going to be the people who otherwise yeah. probably mm. can't buy. Now, if you think about the numbers, if we think of older, if we think about eligibility, you know, 80% of Australians earn less than 90 grand. So, like, potentially a lot of people are eligible. How many people are eligible once you add or how many people want to take it up is a different story. If you think of that older cohort, we, th we estimate there's 60,000 households where the aged over 45, where the single people, people who are single have at least 200 grand in savings and rent and couples have 300,000 in savings and mm -hmm. rent. <laughs> so, you know, that's a, that's a cohort that could, could, could take this up. If all of them took that up, then the home ownership rate amongst that, that age cohort, you know, increases by yeah. three percentage points, right? That's not nothing. Uh, it's not everything. So, you know, I think there's the scope there for this to shift the needle amongst those cohorts that are otherwise going to basically be at risk of some sort of poverty or otherwise have a very insecure retirement because of the way tenancy laws work. But it's not going to solve everything. It is interesting, though, that people can have that much money sitting in the bank and it's not enough to buy a property, you know, because it's not a, it's not an insignificant sum of money, is it? So being able to make it work harder for you and do something with it to actually give you security and stability, you know, there's there's a lot to be said for that. I, I'd love it if the policy actually was a little bit more um, targeted so that you could be more confident that that's, that's who was going to take it up. Um Interest rates rising as well. I mean, that's sort of the most vulnerable uh, segment of the market are the first home buyers and those who have actually just entered the market, say, in the last couple of years. Where And, and obviously as well, I think anyone who's taken advantage of the government's um, deposit, home loan deposit scheme as well because or guarantee scheme because, of course, 
you know, there's that risk of negative equity, particularly if they're bought brand new and, and those types of properties that, that do um, have a very poor history when it comes to that sort of uh, performance. Other than first home buyers and other than people in that cohort, maybe there's 500,000 that, that sit in, you know, that in that sort of cohort that would be most at risk uh, from rising interest rates. You know, is it really something that we should be worried about or do, should we just get over the fact we've had them low for so long and it's really been abnormal? Well, look, as someone who's just bought a larger property and taken out a larger <laughs> loan, like, no, no, but in all seriousness, I think um, I think we should be, what struck me, we just did some work on this recently, Veronica, I, going into thinking about this over the last couple of years, thought we're all kind of in a bit of a Faustian bargain where household debt has increased, you know, we're all in this together as rates rise, you know, where the pain will be fairly mm. evenly spread. The work that we've done recently, mm. that's not true, right? And maybe, maybe you know, the insights you guys bring would have would have brought you there faster. But what we found, for example, right, is if you're thinking about the cohort that bought a lot while ago, anyone who bought more yep. than three years ago, you know, they are way ahead mm. of their mortgage repayments. The average borrower is 20 yep. months ahead on their mortgage repayment, 22 months ahead on their mortgage repayments. They were only 10 months ahead when mm. COVID hit. So, you know, they're, they're well ahead. They've often still been paying those higher yep. repayments anyway. This was us before we yep. bought the new house. We were just half the half the, the loan repayments were paying yep. the principal, you know, and we only bought five years ago, six years ago, which is pretty uncommon, mm. right, In uh, over time. Um, it was a bit of a rare moment. And so the average person, if we think about total mortgage repayments across the yep. whole economy, right, and just of the interest payments because we don't can't yeah. track the principal. You know, repayments now, total interest repayments on mortgages are about 4% of total disposable household income yeah. across the whole economy. Now, that's obviously mixing everyone together, people who are own, yeah. people who don't, people yeah. without mortgages, people with. If they rise by, they have to rise by two, mortgage rates have to rise by two percentage points just to get us back to where they were yeah. before COVID because those principals have been paid down mm. so far. Yeah. But what what really worried me was, you know, as someone who bought recently, <laughs> recently, um, when we did the, we did these numbers for a new purchaser, it doesn't take very long for things to really yeah. bite, because rates are at you know, say you took out a mortgage at two percent, uh, a fixed rate, or if you took out the standard variable rate mortgage today is, or until recently it was two two point two whatever. Uh, if interest rates rise by a couple of percentage points, they are paying a materially higher share of their income in yeah. repayments. Now, the banks obviously assess people the ability to repay previously, assuming the interest rate was 2.5% above the, the benchmark or something close to prevailing rate. Now it's 3% as of November last year. Lots of people, I don't think very many people will default. I think that that's very unlikely because if you default, it's on your credit record for five years, yeah. very unlikely you'll buy again. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. Yeah, but a lot of people are going to experience a big hit to their financial situation. They'll be in stress, right? They'll have to cut back on their spending. Um, but what struck me is because it's this really tight wedge of people that are really going to feel that and everyone else is kind of mm. going to be okay, 
you could actually see rates rise a fair way before you start to crimp spending across the rest of the economy with one caveat, which is what happens to house mm. prices. Now, Veronica, I saw um, you comment on a Christopher Joy <laughs> piece, I think it was on yeah, LinkedIn yeah. the other day. Look, I, I really like Chris's stuff because he's got a better track record forecasting the housing market than mm. anyone else I know. Um, and he called the 2008 downturn, he called the boom pretty early on in the COVID period. You know, he's talking about house prices falling 20%, 25% if interest rates rise by a couple of percentage points. The big question, I think, for the economy and the big question that I don't have a good handle on is what's the size of the wealth effect? Because that's what mm. actually will cut spending for everyone else if they feel yeah. poor. And, you know, as a, as a recent borrower, I hope the, hope the wealth effect's really <laughs> big because that means the Reserve Bank will raise rates by less as a, in yeah. order to curtail inflation. Because if the wealth effect's small then rates go up a lot. A lot th Those recent borrowers are going to really feel yeah. it really sharp. Yeah, so what you're saying is even though if prices um, are falling, then if we keep going out and spending and keep on increasing inflation, um, then they're going to have to keep increasing interest rates, which keeps on making property prices fall, and at some point we cut our spending back, right? So it's, it's if we you know tighten the purse strings early on, which we can already see. You know, We were surprised at how many emails we got after Tuesday from clients saying, oh, interest rates are going up. Maybe we should, what can I do about my mortgage? And, you know, inquiry for new customers. You know, like I think you'll find that a lot of people will refinance. That'll, you know, because they'll get on better rates. Um, the interesting thing, you're saying a lot of the buyers that will be heard are the ones in the last three years. But, you know, the ABS basically released stats and show how many borrowers borrow more than six times salary, right? Um, and that's when you borrow more than six times salary, that means you're stretching, right? That's that DTI limit. But, you know, 80% of borrowers don't stretch to the limit, right? And so um, I think that's what that's an interesting element as well. They don't include what money else you've got in offset accounts, um, what you've got in redraw. They don't include whether you've got share portfolios and other assets you could sell. Um, you know, so a lot of the, the thinking that interest rates will automatically force people into, um, you know, financial stress don't take into those fact factors, I guess, that there's lots of other buffers that most people have got that um, that allow them to sort of just get through those higher rates. I think that's true in general, Chris. So I think it was a quarter of recent borrowers have a debt-to-income yep. ratio above six of very yep. recent borrowers. Like that's mm. where it peaked. Um, now, for people who have just bought, if they have stretched, they probably and they're young, they probably don't have a lot outside, right? Like um, if you're if you if you, the, I think what will be interesting is the very people who have gone to six DTI are probably the people who don't have a lot. Yeah. Outside, uh, whereas those that do, I tend to think that you'll find any the people who have a lot of outside liquidity will tend to be a yeah. little bit older, and maybe not tend to be those first time buyers. I can. It's an interesting. Yeah, question and I think also the ones who are going six times, just from general observation, you know, the people who are you know really stretching it are the people who back themselves, right? People who are going, <laughs> look, I know I'm taking on this massive mortgage. But, yeah, I'm at this role in the, this company, but I'm working towards this next role. I'm going to get a 25% bump in my salary. Or, you know, we're actually going to go back to full-time, two in full-time, you know, next year and et cetera. So the people who stretch generally are the people who are confident on wage increases. Because, you know, you wouldn't go out and stretch and take on a $1, $2 million mortgage if you thought, you know what, I really hate my job and I want to quit tomorrow. Like it's <laughs> though, that sort of mindset is that abundance I'm going to. So I, I feel like, you know, like as we, you do the numbers, if your interest rates go up one or two percent, you know a five or ten percent pay rise completely covers that extra interest because you're saying it's um, as a as a percentage of income. So, 
you know, I, I think a lot of wage increases because of a really tight labour market, which we're going to talk about, um, will basically offset any increase in interest rates for that cohort that have really stretched to 6 DTI. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that thinking? Look, it's the kind of thinking, it's, you know, when we ran our own calcs, right, um, you know, I ran them basically, you know, the idea you want to account for is what you're mentioning is often called mortgage tilt, like the idea that your the debt is fixed mm. in nominal dollars. Assuming interest payments don't, repayments don't rise, then they're fixed in nominal dollars and your income rises with inflation and then hopefully yep. with some real wage growth as well, particularly if your sort of peak earnings are only yep. about age 45. So, even if like the average Australian, if the wage price index hasn't risen for close to a decade, you know, someone who was 30 and is now 40 has normally seen quite a lot of income growth because they've mm, got more experience, they've become more senior, all the rest of it. Uh, I think where, you know, that's certainly how we thought about it when we've bought. Um, I think probably the difference is some people probably had a trajectory of interest rates that started a year or two out and they're going to come a lot quicker than what they perhaps thought, <laughs> right? Because... There's a big difference between like over the course of five years, my income rises 25%. Therefore, my repayments fall as a share of my mortgage by that amount. And I oh, wait, no, that interest rate that you thought was three years away is actually here. Like, Well, yeah, everyone, everyone was sort of banking on 2024 and then all of a sudden here it is at 2022. Before we get into sort of wages, I, I do want to sort of dig in a little bit harder on here because there's this it seems to be okay if you look at um, the history of price or price movement in property and interest rate movement over the last say three decades, the, the correlation isn't really there. It doesn't automatically go that interest rates go up and prices fall. You know, and they might they might happen, but there are other factors at play. If that happens, you know what I mean. There's times when interest rates have gone up and prices have risen and vice versa. So so. Um, so it is a little bit lazy, I think, of a lot of commentators, a lot of headlines and all the rest of it just to have these automatic, oh, prices are going, uh, you know, rates are rising so prices are going to fall. So there's going to be other things in, in play if prices fall and a big part of it is is confidence, you know, and who puts their property on the market and who has to put their property on the market, who has to take the, the sale price and all that sort of stuff. And so that's why it's, it's sort of it's a segment of the market that, that gets hurt or hurts more than, than other segments. So if you look at, say, who's bought in the last – um, three years and so they're more, they're more vulnerable and then of those who have bought in the last three years you know those who have gone to six times you know in terms of their borrowing are more vulnerable so there's what six hundred thousand transactions a year is that sort of how much it basically works so what we're looking at um two million uh property owners and of those two million property owners what percentage would have really really maxed themselves out yeah and so then you can sort of to some degree put some some idea of a number around how many are going to be really stretched and then how many of them vote all of them i would presume but anyway <laughs> they're all required to that's uh, um, so look I, I probably look i'm an economist i do have some faith in some of those models um only because the models are more sophisticated than like there's a relationship one-to-one -one mm -hmm. between interest rates and house prices. It's what else has driven access to uh, what else, you know, putting in income growth, putting in other factors into the model to sort of work out what's going to drive sort of house prices over the longer term. I think it's hard to look at what's happened during COVID and not see a lot of that as being mm -hmm. interest rate risks. I think I came on the program early in COVID and we talked about I think the words I use because I wasn't willing to make a forecast because you know I'd show up in your your, your forecast. <laughs> you did get quoted in it this year, yeah. Oh, did yeah, I? You know, okay. You're just showing you haven't read oh, it. 
No, yeah, you have to download it and read it and um, find out where you are. <laughs> but I will, I will have a look at it. Um, no, it's good that you hold people to account. But I think I said something on the lines of we're about to find out in the next two years where the fundamentals or interest rates yeah. are the main drivers mm. at the moment of prices. And, look, it turned out interest rates yeah. were the main driver of prices, I think, over yeah. that period. So I think it's hard to look at what happened during COVID and not think the interest rates had a really big role to mm-hmm. play in where we ended up. And so as that recedes... Uh, what else is going to add to the demand or people's willingness to pay for housing at the margin to offset that? And I've struggled to see other things that are going to drive it. Income growth is probably not going to yep. be there to the extent that you'd hope. Um, you know, access to credit is already pretty open. Um, if Labor wins the election, which, you know, by the time listen to this will know, it's unlikely that credit standards will be loosened. I'd be surprised. The coalition already loosened them a couple of years ago. That did drive prices high. I think that was the big mm. driver of prices high before COVID when they saw the recovery after the yep. 2019 election. So, you know, I my understanding of the models is it's like the lo- expectation of long-term interest rates that yep. end up driving the house price impulse. And, you know, I, we've entered a world where the main pressures putting downward deflationary pressure on the global economy, some of them aren't doing that right now. So China has been the main driver, right, uh, in the sense of, you know, manufactured goods from China rock up in Australia and they're cheaper than what they were six months ago. They're cheaper than yes. what they were two years ago. Now Shanghai's in lockdown. Um, there is a, a push to sort of nationalise supply chains post-COVID. I, it, I'm, it's not like the 1970s. Like I'm not sure mm. we're in that world, but it does look like that impulse has at least gone away for a little while. And so expectation for long-term rates seem to have lifted. Um, you know, that's certainly what seems to be happening in the US, in Australia with long-term bond yields. And so that's what's well, those models that Christopher Joy is picking up, that's what they're picking up. Um, now, it's worth keeping in mind the RBA says interest rates rise 2 percentage points, real house prices fall 15%. If inflation runs at 15% over two years, does that mean house prices just mm-hmm. stay still. Now, you said real house prices. Can you explain what you mean by that? So what I mean is house prices adjusted yeah. for inflation, right? That's, you know, so when we talk about real income growth, it's like does your income rise faster or slow or not or slower mm. than the rate of inflation that determines your purchasing power. And so effectively economy. there's already inflation has been priced into the price rises that we have and no one talks about that, do they? <laughs> no, that's right. So that's one thing that's going to be driving up you know, if 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 nominal incomes are right, you end up rising partly mm. because of inflation, and that does feed through into wages. Then you know, people's purchasing power increase. Well, their their borrowing capacity increases, even if their purchasing power to go buy goods and services in the economy hasn't increased. What do you think about Brendan? The, the high like, the, what likelihood do you see that interest rates go up, um, supply issues around the world get solved? You know, maybe the war issues sort of get resolved. Um, you know, maybe some of those deflationary things start to come back, um, then there's some type of world crisis. You know, maybe there's another Euro debt crisis or or something that pops up in the world um, and another COVID crisis or something like that and all of a sudden we need to stimulate demand again and we cut rates and we get back down to zero and we start talking about negative rates around the world. You've got ageing populations, aged care, um, you know, demographic issues in lots of countries. I mean, do you think we, we could very easily get back into that world um, just with one more crisis. Yeah, look, I, I don't think the world of like low, structurally low interest rates yeah. has gone away, right? So if you look at sort of bond yields out past sort of five years, 
and particularly the sort of the inflation index bond yields in the US, like everything flies yeah. on to 3%, right? So the idea is rates rise and then they stop. Now, obviously, that's a midpoint forecast. There's a distribution around that. Um, and so, you know, the upside distribution for rates is that they yeah. rise more than 3%. The downside is that they rise less. Uh, Zach Gross has done some good work. He's an academic at Monash, um, sort of asking how good a forecast are near-term, you know, futures of uh, the future path of interest rates. And they're actually reasonably good. You know, it's fairly unlikely based on historical experience that rates would rise by less than 2% if you look at mm. sort of the historic, that historical period. Um, I tend to think, you know, I tend to lean towards, you know, you're going to see an interest in rates and then uh, provided that China doesn't fall over during this period because it's this is the, the, the biggest challenges China's faced, I think, on an economic front for a long time because they basically chose not to use Western vaccines, relied on Sinovac. Sinovac was not effective against uh, um, against the latest strains mm. like Omicron. And that's why they're in, and combined with sort of a plan that was based around zero COVID, which we've talked about before, good idea when you yeah. don't have vaccines. Once you have vaccines, you don't need it anymore. And so they're, they're sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place. And so, you know, if you've looked at those maps of all the ships hanging out off the shore of Shanghai, they're huge supply shocks coming down the path to us. So if you look, if you want to buy a PlayStation, I've been trying to buy a PS5 for I think two years now and have failed to get one. I don't think I'm going to get one for another couple at this rate. But like, so there's some, like I think there's some upside risks that haven't probably been fully sort of built into people's expectations on supply shocks. But in the long term, yeah, I don't think you're going back to a world of five, six, seven percent interest rates necessarily. I think those those aging demographics they're still there. You know, when we think about macro policy. We're thinking about what do you do if we're still going to sit near the zero lower bound for the cash rate long yeah. term? What does that do for fiscal policy? I think that's the world we still need to be thinking to a first approximation. We're do you think also we should be celebrating inflation? You know, the reality is um, it's what governments really want to do is inflate their debt away, but it's also what <laughs> us as, you know, mortgage holders want to do. You know, if we take out a, a million dollars of debt, um, if inflation deteriorates money, then that million dollars, uh, as long as you get uh, wage increases as well attached to that, should we just be, you know, I guess, thankful that we're getting a bit of inflation, thankful that we're getting wage, you know, low unemployment, um, potentially wage increases? And, and yes, maybe a consequence of that is we pay a little bit extra on our mortgage. But ultimately, that's the the best thing for us as a, as a consumer, I guess. So I think, you know, this is going to come out after the election, so it's not useful for people deciding what they think of economic policy. But the fact that we have inflation right now is a sign of economic mm. policy success. You know, deflation is a really bad thing. If you were sitting along with cash rate at zero all through this period, or 0.1%, that's a sign that there's not we're not mm. at full employment, the economy is not going gangbusters. You know, it's fair to say that the economy, the state of the macro economy right now is the Morrison government's greatest achievement, you know. They are sitting with the cash rate at 4%, the lowest level, close to the lowest level in 50 years. Underemployment's come down a long way. There was lots of hand-wringing about youth unemployment before mm. COVID. It's come down. Female workforce participation is high. It's particularly high now um, because the economy is running strong. And so this is a sign of success. You know, we've actually seen quite a radical regime change, I think, from the arms of monetary so interest rates from the RBA and fiscal, you know, government borrowing and spending in the last couple of years. You're in a world pre-COVID where the RBA was refusing to cut interest rates even though they, inflation was below target for six years. They put the cash rate at 
They pledged to keep it there until inflation actually rose and they did quantitative easing. You know, before COVID, the federal government was aiming for budget surpluses of 1% of GDP and had successive governments have been pushing for that for a decade. Now they're saying they're going to keep things where they are or broadly keep things where they are until, or essentially now they've sort of hit the target for full employment. This is a sign of success. This is, you know, we've got some work that will be out by the time the, um, the, where people are listening to this that basically shows the people who win the gain most when unemployment's low mm. are actually the most vulnerable. Like if you're, a dis- if you're living with a disability not in the labor force, no, but like vulnerable low-income workers, when unemployment rises across the economy, their unemployment yeah. rises twice wow. as fast. Yeah. So when unemployment falls, they do the best. And so, look, it's not to say you don't need transfer policy, you don't need sort of income support to help them. You absolutely do. Uh, we've advocated that for a long time, but it has a huge impact. Now, as far as borrowers, yeah, if you think about what happened in 1990, cash rate hit seven, well, interest rates hit 17%, inflation was running right, and then within three years, the cash rates at 10, interest rates were at 10%. You've deflated away a third of your debt in the first three years, and then you just rode the wave of lower interest rates yeah. for the next 30 years. It was a great time to buy. Like, it didn't feel like that at the time, I'm sure. Um, but in hindsight, a brilliant time to buy. For people now, look, some inflation is great. for Inflation is a transfer from savers yeah. to borrowers. As a borrower, I kind of like that. Uh, but over time, it is one of the things you probably want to do. You probably want somewhat higher inflation than what we had as a sign of a healthy economy, a healthy labour market, and that is actually and better So with all of that, though, wages have been stagnating for some time and there's also the argument about the, you know, how the employment rate is calculated and how many hours you have to work and that sort of palaver. So why haven't wages risen? Uh, so first of all, on the unemployment rate, because Veronica, you raised a, a, an interesting point, which is the unemployment rate is determined, do you work yes. at least one hour a week, right? <laughs> now, there are only 15,000 people in Australia that only work one hour a week, and the majority of them are really happy just working one hour a week. They don't That'd want be to be me. I'd anymore. love that. Just do one hour of this podcast uh, a week. Uh, they were fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it's a world we can all aspire to when we're in our 60s perhaps. And so... Um, so, if you did it at one hour a week or 10 hours a week, the trend right, okay. looks the same. It's the best labour market yeah. in a long time. Now, the biggest critique of unemployment is probably that it doesn't capture mm. yet underemployment. Those two rates are pretty correlated yeah. in the sense that the one they're both falling right now. Um, now, why isn't wait? So, our work sort of shows, you know, people haven't had wage rises over the last decade. About a third of that is because, at least a third of that is because the unemployment rate was too high yeah. before COVID. In the decade from 2013 right. through to yeah. 20. 19, it was because unemployment was too high. So workers didn't have bargaining power. They weren't sort of, there wasn't competition. So they, mm. they lose out. Now, why, is an une- why aren't why are wages rising right now? Well, you know, most wages are not set instantaneously. Yeah. They're set with a lag. You know, a third of people are on enterprise bargaining agreements that have an average length yeah. of two to three years. Another 20 odd percent mm. are on awards. Now they're set off the, largely off the Fair Work Commission's minimum wage case each year. So, depending on what happens, you'll get a quite a bump there. I know Albanese just came out today saying he, he supports that bump of five, at least 5.1% wow. uh, to keep up with inflation, right? And then the remainder are on a, uh, largely on individual contacts. So it's like a Grattan, like I'll find out what my pay is next year in December, like the mm-hmm, yearly yeah. wage sort of processes. So even if unemployment has sort of suddenly hit 4% now, 
It's going to take some mm-hmm. time for it to flow through. That happened during the global financial, just before the global financial crisis and the mining boom. Real wages went backwards for a period there because inflation picked up before right, wages yeah. picked up. Um, so I would expect that wages growth will pick up. Now, the, there's open questions. Why isn't it? What are the other drags? Well, the big one mm-hmm. is productivity. You know, we're not just not right in getting rising incomes. There's questions about bargaining power. Can, we can haven't I done the work. Just on jump that. in there. Can you explain what productivity is? Because we hear about this, right? And we hear about things like, you know, you got to, government's got to pay for more childcare and that will increase productivity. And and I know that, that what that means is more parents involved in the workforce, et cetera, et cetera. But, but from an economical point of view, how does, what does that mean? So mm. what is productivity? Okay, so productivity is how much output you get per unit of input. So, you know, that sounds really <laughs> dry and boring. But essentially it's like, you know, if you, if you have a factory and all of a sudden using the same machinery and the same labour, you produce 10% more, mm. you know, widgets because you've you've changed how the factory floor operates or you've replaced one piece of equipment with another, then that's an increase in productivity yep. of 10%, right? Um, and so in the long run, long run living standards are essentially determined by productivity. Like that's the reason why we have different levels of um, income between, say, Australia and, you know, uh, a lot of so, so I mean, on a, in a macro sense, is how much all the businesses in the in the in the country are producing or putting into the economy. I mean, how does what does it mean? I, I get in the factory sense, in the yeah. factory analogy. <laughs> uh, okay, so there's two mm. probably two concepts that are worth describing. So there is um, labour productivity. So how productive is a worker? Now that's what's relevant yep. for people's wages. Now that is driven by both um, the degree of capital intensity, the amount of machines, equipment that people have at their disposal yep. per worker in order to produce whatever it is Leverage they're producing, whether it be sitting in an office <laughs> yep. or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's capital. And so if you invest more capital deepening, then you'll um, then there will, normally there will be an increase in the wage for the worker because they share in the return that comes producing from that, that capital deepening. And then obviously whoever invested gets their share of the return as well now then there's another concept which is total factor productivity which is basically give it for give it for given levels of capital and labor um how do we make people more productive um so are people becoming more productive for a given level of capital per worker now total factor productivity is uh, in a country like australia is what you probably largely want uh, because we've already got fairly high levels of capital investment, right? Like, you know, capital intensity is already pretty high. And so when it comes to things like total factor productivity, it's things like can we change the tax system, like get rid of stamp duty, replace it with a land tax that improves the allocation of people across the economy. If you're thinking about childcare, you know, the argument is essentially if you bring more women into the workforce, they then develop more human capital over time and that because they, they're, for, they're often losing a bunch of human capital that they've developed when they leave the workforce and then okay, and they add to it and then they come back in and use that um, to be and more so productive. And so by that, that sort of goes to, you know, closing the gap between, you know, male and female um, incomes I'm presuming. So if you're in the workforce, you don't take time out of it, then you don't lose, you're not losing skill or you're not losing, um, you know, traction along with, you know, you don't need to recoup your time. You're not losing your ability to be promoted or anything like that. Is that the sort of thing you're talking about? Yeah, you don't lose sort of, uh, it's 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 the same as when you become unemployed. Like if you become unemployed, then you see a sustained mm. loss in your income yep. over time that lasts yep. for five okay. years, mm. right? So that's part of what we're releasing on um, in a couple of days is, you know, 
those losses in income for when you become unemployed are close to a year's yeah. worth of wages over the mm. course of five years. Now, part of that is because you lose firm-specific human capital. Like, you know, you're particularly good at doing a yeah. job within a company. You know, part of it might be that you lose capital, you, you lose skills that, that atrophy because you're not doing the thing that you were paid to do, that you studied, um, that you developed over time. Like, all of these things can lead to what you might call scarring. Now, you can kind of think of when someone leaves the workforce because they have a kid as having some mm. similar effects. Like, you know, you, you're not doing... You, you're, you're learning new skills as a new parent, but, um, you know, you're not learning, you're not developing and maintaining your skill set in the, the, the profession or the, in what you've trained in over time. And that over time, you will lose some of that capability. And then also over time, if there's no attachment to the, to the, to the workplace when you're away, then, yeah, you'll lose the prospect of seniority and promotions along the way. Uh, and that's partly what drives the gender gap, right, is that we see this, um, the gen- part of the gender gap is discrimination, like same yeah. person, same job, earning less. That's a real thing. But quite a lot of the gender gap in pay is actually people just being at lower levels. And you see that in all sorts of organisations, from particularly for mm. women aged 40 plus, when they've had their children often, um, where they slot back in, they'll slot yeah. back in at a different level. Or they, you know, even just think you take three years out of the workforce, that changes how much you're going to invest in like... Yeah. Training, yeah. are you going to go do, a, uh, do some retreat training? Are uh, you going to take a new job? Like a lot of pay rises occur when people take jobs. So mobility mm. is actually really important. The best way to get a pay rise is to change job. Are you willing to change a job if you're worried about going to lose yeah. your parent, pay, paid parental leave entitlement if you've left the workforce and you're not going to get it? And maybe that's why there's a lag with the wage increases as well, right? People have had, had the confidence to swap jobs the last couple of years, but now they're confident and they're getting offers and they're headhunted. And so a lot of that. You know, job hopping is going to what's caused wages to increase. I mean, with the inflation numbers, Brendan, I mean, my sort of take when I look at them is that, yeah, I mean, oil price, you know, that's a big part of it, right? And that hits certain households more than others, ones that drive every day and drive a lot of Ks um, versus some that don't drive that often. Maybe human behavior changes. Maybe you don't go and see your friend. Maybe you take the bus. Maybe you get the train. Um, in, and maybe you don't do that extra chip down the shops. You'd be a bit smarter. You do online shopping, et cetera. So, I think the higher fuel prices because people are so in tune with them will we'll, we'll change behaviour almost. Um, we'll use our cars less. I don't know if you've got any data on that. So maybe that offsets the higher prices. But do you think that if the oil price comes back down, you know, global issues around that get sorted, um, that that'll subdue a lot of the increases in inflation? Because from what you look at the data, it's transport that's gone up a lot, um, plus housing. And, you know, chatting to people in the housing market, you know, builders and roofers and, and things like that, um, you know, they seem to see that things are starting to slow down. You know, the, the perception that it costs too much and you can't get trades mm. is out there in the marketplace. The so people are saying, well, I'm just going to put my renos on hold. Um, and so they're getting less calls. So housing demand is probably going to decrease um, because everyone believes that it's hard to, it's not a great time to build. And then potentially fuel prices are going to, so our inflation numbers just going to start dropping anyway because, those are the two things that are causing it to be so high. It's a good question. So I think the thing to keep in mind with inflation is a lot of what's going on at the moment is coming from offshore. Like it is it is inflation in tradables that are coming from offshore, petrol. Obviously, you've got the fuel excise cut at the moment. That's going to run out, you know, in like September, October. Everything's going to bump back up by 22 cents to the litre. But I think what worried – the two things worrying the Reserve Bank as to why they've started raising rates is – 
One, you're looking in. One is that service that um, trade non-tradable inflation. So trade inflation that's in goods and services that aren't traded abroad. So particularly services was right up. I think three point seven percent in the last year. So it's actually taken off a bit. Now part of that's going to be sort of in the supply chain from things like service, tradable services, non-tradable services use tradable goods as inputs. Right, so partly it's going to be driven a bit by the supply shocks from abroad, but that was the sign that maybe there's some inflationary pressures taking off in the domestic economy, and that's what's I think worried them, and why they went now rather than later. And the second is, you know, inflation is like looking in the rearview mirror. It is crazy that we only have the inflation print every three months. It is just I just do not understand why we don't have monthly inflation numbers. Now the ABS is now doing them. David Gruen, he's the new chief mm-hmm. statistician. Um, is you know is is an old boss at Treasury. He's fantastic, and he's all the all the data work they did during the pandemic was. I think a lot of it came down to him doing a lot of that or pushing for that. But it's kind of you, you're sort of driving along, looking in the rearview mirror uh, because that's inflation of you know what five point one percent is in the twelve yeah. months to March mm, this year. Yeah. Yeah, and we're only making changes in in May, so we're two months behind, and you know you could potentially see these inflation shocks the middle of last year, right? Um, and they're only starting to really sort of amplify in the last quarter sort of thing, yeah? That's right. So, you know, quarter-on-quarter quarter inflation is running well more than one. Yeah. I think it's a 2%. So, like, you add that over, annualize that over a year, you're yeah. at 7 8%. Like, that's, yeah. that's the worry. Um, so, they're doing absolutely the right thing by raising rates now. I think the question will just be to keep stopping and looking at how much of an impact it has on the economy over time. Because you can you can overdo it. Most recessions start with the central bank crushing demand. Mm. So I mean, my final question for you, Brendan, on migration. So, you know, when are we going to start to really see whether Australia is seen as a really viable choice that a lot of skilled talent around the world are going to go back to like it was pre-COVID, and our numbers are going to be you know huge demand to come to Australia um, because of you know all the reasons that we all know about. But how are we going to know that that's come back? Because I think that's the real. Thing that I'm interested in seeing, not so much the students. I mean, the students are great for the, the tertiary education market, etc. Um, but when does the skilled labour come back and how many people are coming and how many people want to come? How are we going to find out that data and when are we likely to see those numbers? So what's interesting, Chris, at the moment is if you think about who's not here, because I see everyone talking about, oh, you know, migrants aren't here, and but no mm. one ever talks about who's not here. So we did that recently. And there's just under 400, between four and 500,000 temporary yep. migrants that aren't here. They're overwhelmingly mm. students down 44% and working holiday makers down 86% since the start of COVID. That's like most of it. Temporary skilled migrants, um, the, the old 457 visa holders, they're only down 20%, but they're a tiny okay. number of people. They are only at one time only, you know, one in 200 oh, wow. people in the labor force. So if you think about who's not here, it's it's the student working as a ca- at the cafe as a barista. It's the per- it's the working holiday picking fruit on a you know a farm outside Melbourne or in Tassie or in Queensland. Now those people will come back. I think as particularly the working holidays makers will come back yeah. now the borders are open because like two or three years of people couldn't go anywhere as twenty one year olds. They probably still yeah. want to have their year away. They still come and do the working holiday. Students, I think it's the hardest story to know whether they'll come back because we didn't treat international students particularly well no. during yeah. the pandemic. You know, they were lining up outside St. Vinny's to get food deliveries. Like, that's not a good look because we didn't give them the support we gave everyone else and they couldn't leave and they couldn't work. Um, 
the international, most of the surveys we see tend to show that for skilled migrants, we still look pretty good. You know, Australia did better than most other countries during COVID. I think there's probably a bit of a lag where people don't, aren't sure, aren't aware that the borders are open. Um, I think that's a meme that's going to take a little while to, to sort of dissipate. And the thing I would do if I was the government would probably be advertising really strongly abroad. Yeah. The borders are open. Like, come back. Like, um, you can come back now. There's no restrictions. Because I think that's what people remember, that there was, like, pandemic restrictions, particularly late last year, because we, you know, screwed yeah. up the vaccine orders. The rest of the world, when I say the rest of the world, the rest, a lot of the rest of the wealthy world had mm. moved on and we hadn't. That was probably the thing that's cost us. But most of the surveys, Chris... When you say where does Australia sit as places where people want to go for skilled migrants, we're actually looking better now than what we were yeah, before right. COVID with the caveat that they were all up to sort of late 2021 or late 2020, early 2021, when we looked better than the rest of the world on, on COVID. Maybe it, if it hasn't changed, I'm not so sure. But I, my first guess would be you're going to see really strong migration numbers yeah. in the next couple of years. Well, we'll awesome, watch Thanks so much for coming on again. And uh, I mean, we didn't ask you got a Dumbo of the Week. Have you got any Dumbo stories that you, you can share with us? No, I know. Maybe my Dumbo is that we bought a house just at the peak of the housing market, but we did get it below the below the reserve. So, you know, we'll, you can ask me in a couple of years how Dumbo well, is. Well, you saw if you can see any properties that you would have bought at a, you know, that are better than yours at a cheaper price and um, see what comes on the market. I think it's, it's we've got clients ask me that as well, you know, like, well, so what else would you have bought? You know, what would you have bought? What would have been a better property than what you got at that price? And the problem is what we're saying is that supply is obviously drying up and the quality properties are less likely to come on the market. And so when people do that, and especially if they bought a good asset, they go, well, you know what? I'm, I'm pretty happy with what I bought and when I bought. Yeah, maybe there's been three properties that are at the same price um, or maybe slightly cheaper, but we're still doing really well. So let, maybe just keep on staying inside your suburb and seeing, you know, is there actually better properties than mine selling cheaper than mine? might give you comfort. <laughs> uh, I've got a friend who basically once he makes a consumption choice, he stops looking at the prices of things ever again. And I think it's actually very a very wise. clever sort of like strategy for your mental health. So I might very actually wise. I do know someone else who did exactly the same thing, bought sort of, at, you know, had bought and sold. They didn't quite manage it to get it exactly right, you know, and sort of feel a little uncomfortable in the selling process. And so it can feel horrible. And it's, it does take a while for that to settle down and you just get on with life. But um, I'd be curious to know, you sold at the same time. Did you feel the same about your sale? Did you feel that you got your sale in at the right time from a seller's point of view? Yeah, I think we did um, in all seriousness. Um, look, I am conscious not to talk too much about it because that that that, that office space, um, the old house has been on TV quite a lot and I'd be worried that the, um, old, the, the people we sold to would see it. But uh, we certainly sold like at the right time, I think. You know, we sold late. Yeah. Late 2021. 20, yeah. That was a good time yeah. to sell. Awesome, Brendan. Good to chat as always. And um, yeah, we'll talk in a few months or next year or whenever it is. <laughs> Thank you. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs, or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo. (laughs) 